Hello and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ludwig Lin. Today, I will be speaking with Dr. Chris Robinson, DOMS, on his article, Neurologic Manifestations of Severe Respiratory Viral Contagions, published in Critical Care Explorations. You can access the full article by visiting ccejournal.org. Dr. Robinson is Assistant Professor of Neurology and Neurosurgery at the University of Florida in Gainesville. Welcome, Dr. Robinson. Thank you for being here with us. And uh, first, you know, let's get this out of the way. Do you have any disclosures to report? None relevant to the topic at hand. Okay. This article was really interesting to read and, you know, definitely somewhat intimidating. It covers more than just what I think is on everybody's mind right now, which is SARS-CoV-2 and COVID-19. Well, we'll definitely talk about that a lot, but I just want to make sure everybody knows that we will also discuss briefly the neurological complications and manifestations of influenza and RSV. So Dr. Robinson, let's get started and uh, talk about the neurologic manifestations of SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19. Um, I, I know that uh, you probably wanted to get started by giving us an overall view of the coronaviruses. Uh, yeah, that's correct. Um, I think for this paper, um, we wanted to do a review on uh, the potential manifestations of uh, COVID. Um, and to start, um, we used uh, the literature and evidence that we have uh, and see in practice in relation to uh, more common coronaviruses, uh, the coronavirus A and coronavirus B strains, um, as well as uh, data that we have uh, to support from the uh, first SARS uh, epidemic, as well as the uh, Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome epidemic uh, that occurred. Um, we know that specifically coronaviruses, and, and more importantly, the beta coronaviruses, of which these endemic, uh, or excuse me, epidemic uh, and uh, pandemic uh, outbreaks are uh, part of, have a specific uh, neurotropism or uh, potential to invade the brain. When we look uh, at data from both SARS and MERS, um, there uh, is evidence to support um, glial cell invasion um, of, uh, with the coronavirus uh, seen at autopsy. Um, there are reports of uh, coronavirus being detected within the uh, cerebral spinal fluid of patients with SARS uh, and MERS. Um, and um, it's something to be considered um, given the landscape of this acute pandemic uh, knowing what potential primary or secondary causes of other systems, including the neurologic system, uh, that could affect a patient's morbidity or mortality. Yeah. So, so let's move on to talk about SARS-CoV-2 uh, specifically. What is the incidence of neurological issues in patients, first of all, infected with SARS-CoV-2, and I suppose, second, those people with severe illness with COVID-19? Uh, it's an excellent question. Uh, the data is obviously a moving target as uh, new reports come out daily, uh, whether they be case reports or, or large series. But uh, the best evidence we have uh, to support thus far uh, that you've seen probably in news reports and literature as a study out of Wuhan, uh, looking at 214 cases uh, of patients presenting um, with uh, 
COVID, um, in those patients, uh, 36% uh, had neurologic manifestations. Now, in this paper, neurologic manifestations ranged uh, widely uh, to include confusion, uh, headache, uh, loss of smell, loss of taste. But more importantly, they also included more severe neurologic manifestations, uh, including stroke or vascular events, uh, encephalopathy, uh, and something that uh, is always a question in the critical care world, um, critical illness uh, neuromyopathy. Um, in this study, they found that 6% of the patients had vascular events related to COVID-19. Uh, the hypothesis uh, at present is it could be a secondary manifestation to uh, cardiac um, dysregulation from the virus and secondary thromboembolism um, or um, viral-related uh, dysregulation of the, cascade, of the, of the coagulation cascade. Um, there's no data at this point to support direct vascular invasion, but it is something that is being considered, at least in our field. Um, additionally, uh, encephalopathy uh, was seen in 3% of patients. And as we uh, move forward day by day, um, there was a report uh, yesterday of, of four patients at Henry Ford Hospital who presented primarily with encephalopathy and subsequently were found to be COVID positive and only developed respiratory symptoms and fever two to three days after their presentation. Upwards of 10% of the patients in this, uh, the, with these neurologic manifestations developed uh, the, the critical illness uh, neuromyopathy. Now, there's no uh, timing of diagnosis related uh, to when these patients uh, were observed having this issue. What they did notice, however, that was that a significant proportion of patients did have uh, muscular injury on top of uh, neuronal injury um, with uh, elevated uh, creatine kinase seeing these patients in, in a form of rhabdomyolysis that was uh, prevalent uh, within this cohort. Uh, what they noticed that uh, was quite evident with the, was that the severe neurologic manifestations were associated with the severe respiratory illness. They noted that these patients had significantly more lymph lymphopenia and thrombocytopenia which might speak to this sepsis-induced coagulopathy and BIC that we're seeing in these patients, perhaps leading to these secondary sequelae. Um, it concerns uh, those of us that manage patients with acute brain injury that perhaps patients are sitting at home for five to seven days prior per to presenting with critical illness, at which time uh, these damaging effects likely are already taking their course. That's a really good thing for all of us to be thinking about. And I, I think what made me worry a little bit more when you were talking just now about this is when I saw that Wuhan report and they talked about people presenting with confusion, I thought, well, I mean, they're, you know, they're, they're septic, they're hypoxic, they're hypotensive, they're febrile. So, you know, a certain portion of them are just going to be confused. But what you were pointing out is that some of that could actually be a um, biologic actual pathology of the brain, which I think all of us need to be more aware of. I agree. Um, and for example, the American Heart Association and American Stroke Association today um, released a protocol on acute stroke management in which they are recommending that every patient uh, presenting with an acute stroke-like illness be considered a COVID rule-out. 
Um, so definitely within the neurologic community, there is concern that viral spread can occur uh, in those that aren't hypervigilant and aware that perhaps primary neurologic sequelae could be the presentation of COVID within the emergency department. That's really good to know. Uh, so let's um, take this opportunity and segue to uh, different types of tests and uh, different symptoms or signs that would increase your level of suspicion. So, for example, you just mentioned that a lot of these patients have a elevated uh, uh, CPK. What other tests should we be considering? I mean, of course, we're going to involve the neurologists, but what other tests should the rest of us be considering uh, when thinking about patients with neurological issues? That's an interesting question, and the true answer is we don't know yet. Um, we are collecting data through the registries and the patients that are admitted. What we do know is that patients with severe respiratory illness have an increased incidence of neurologic illness. We know that with some uh, more severe lymphopenia and thrombocytopenia, uh, they're correlating with neurologic manifestations much like they are with respiratory manifestations. What, what can get confusing um, are the elevations in serum uh, aminotransferases, uh, which in large part in the critical care setting tend to be blamed on acute encephalopathy. Um, so we know that viral and post-viral encephalopathic pathologies like acute necrotizing encephalo, uh, encephalitis uh, tend to have a normal CSF profile. Um, we can talk about that case uh, at a later time, um, but at present, we don't have any specific surrogates uh, from a laboratory standpoint. What does concern me, however, is the basis of neurology in general is that the physical exam uh, is still the best means by which we assess our patients. In this current pandemic, with the fulminant respiratory failure that's occurring, with the need for sedation, paralysis, proning, and mechanical ventilation, I worry that we are perhaps going to miss some of the underlying neurologic sequelae that can occur in these patients and not recognize them until it's too late. This is often the case when patients present um, following uh, cardiac surgery, for example. Um, so we need to be hypervigilant that these things can occur and that perhaps down the road, some of the deaths that are related to COVID might be secondary to neurologic sequelae that did occur. So let me ask you a uh, follow-up question about tests. So for example, somebody who comes in febrile and confused, I, I think some of us might decide that it's time for a lumbar puncture. So in this age of uh, high prevalence of SARS-CoV-2 and COVID-19 in the general population, and you already mentioned that actually the uh, CSF itself isn't necessarily that abnormal. Should we be doing a lumbar puncture? Should we be doing, for example, a head MRI or a head CT? What, what are your thoughts about that? I think that's an excellent question. If you look at all the viral illnesses and what we refer to typically as aseptic meningitis, um, you can have some elevation in protein, you can have some pleocytosis, um, but usually we're unable to isolate uh, the virus specifically. That, that goes for influenza, that goes for coronavirus, uh, that goes for RSV. There are case reports of isolating these viruses. Um, I think it's an interesting question. Um, 
does every patient that presents with uh, acute respiratory distress syndrome need uh, neuroimaging? Um, I think it's up for debate. Um, I, I risk versus benefit with transferring the patient to and from uh, their rooms, uh, risk of um, exposing staff to uh, additional procedures such as a lumbar puncture uh, might not be necessary. Um, I would suggest to you that um, the interventions related to some of the neurologic manifestations, specifically those uh, such as encephalomyelitis, are ma mainly symptomatic. And so early about treatment of the virus itself is, is the cure. Um, from a perspective of needing to look at the opening pressure, to look at the actual level of ICP in those patients, I don't think that's necessary at this juncture. Um, I just worry that with the inability to examine these patients uh, while um, on their airborne precautions, we would miss uh, an, an, uh, an opportunity to obtain imaging or a lumbar puncture where in an otherwise um, infected patient, we would have done those things. Right. Let's move on and actually start discussing some of the various um, elements that go into how the virus affects the uh, CNS and the, the, the different syndromes that we can see. So um, maybe I could get you to discuss with us the various proposed mechanisms via which SARS-CoV-2 actually gets into the brain because, I mean, after all, there is the blood-brain barrier. Uh, it's an excellent question. Um, again, the data that we have for this goes back uh, to the 1950s when we were first able to isolate coronaviruses. Um, over time, we've collected um, uh, evidence not only to support human transmission of coronavirus, but also porcine um, specifically. Um, that causes direct neural invasion. So your preclinical studies uh, really um, formed a basis with um, the porcine hemagglutinin and encephalomyelitis in which they were able to isolate uh, the porcine um, form of coronavirus within uh, pig brains. The three ways that are proposed uh, for, that the virus enters into the brain um, is via a transcellular, a paracellular, or axonal retrograde method. When we think about why or how the virus has specific neurotropism, uh, it's likely related to the fact that ACE2 cells, the cells that are being affected within the respiratory tract with uh, SARS-CoV-2, are prevalent within the uh, brain and the brain stem. If you look at the majority of uh, data from SARS and MERS, uh, the the Authors typically suggest that uh, axonal retrograde transport, uh, as well as a transsynaptic um, movement of the virus, is how uh, the neurotropism occurs. Uh, so this is important because what, when we talk about the clinical aspects of um, uh, SARS-CoV-2, uh, recent reports uh, from the ENT Society in the United Kingdom um, as well throughout the United States, uh, state that loss of smell and loss of taste are uh, prevalent symptoms and can be the primary presenting symptom of COVID. This is likely related to this uh, transsynaptic and, or axonal retrograde transport, uh, and there's direct evidence of uh, invasion of ACE2 cells within the nucleus tractus solitaris, which is involved in, in taste specifically, um, but lying in that area within the medulla um, is the dorsal respiratory group, which also contains uh, ACE2 cells uh, and is a theoretical reason uh, that patients could have 
potentiated respiratory failure due to apneic events or due to direct invasion of the uh, respiratory mechanisms within uh, within the um, the brainstem. From a blood-brain barrier perspective, um, the retrograde transport uh, allows for direct neural invasion. The transcellular transsynaptic uh, is usually required in a state of viremia in which a phagocyte or a uh, macrophage uh, takes the virus up uh, and is directly transported through the blood-brain barrier. There are some viruses that use a paracellular, paracellular mechanism in which they can migrate through the tight junctions across the blood-brain barrier, but uh, at this at this juncture, we think uh, coronavirus specifically, but also COVID-19 uh, likely uses transsynaptic and axonal retrograde transport. Okay. I wanted to ask you about the disruption of the blood-brain barrier. Uh, so that mechanism proposes that uh, phagocytes and infected cells with um, the virus are crossing the blood-brain barrier. So you feel like in COVID-19, that is not a as prominent a mechanism for invasion of the CNS. Is that correct? Uh, the answer is we don't know. Um, from the SARS outbreak, we have direct evidence of blood-brain barrier breakdown and uh, post-mortem pathological studies identifying coronavirus within glial cells specifically. Um, so uh, we're uncertain, um, but uh, that's, that's what we're thinking at this juncture. Got it. Uh, just out of personal curiosity, uh, you know, even the public is now obsessed with cytokine storms, which we Correct. in the critical care world have, you know, long been struggling with, with uh, septic shock and ARDS. One thing that I've never particularly um, learned more about is, is that state of a hyperinflammatory response uh, also affecting the blood-brain barrier, or does that stay pretty intact during the cytokine storm? It's an excellent question. I think it definitely does. If you look at um, cases of acute necrotizing encephalitis uh, or encephalopathy, um, the, the postulated reason behind that is this cytokine storm resulting in blood-brain barrier breakdown, resulting in a hyperinflammatory state within the uh, brain itself, leading to necrosis uh, through activation of, of, of mediators such as tumor necrosis factor and caspases. Um, so I think that's a, that does have a direct effect on this breakdown. Um, and it's interesting that you asked that because uh, in reference to in-stage acute respiratory distress in these patients uh, resulting in likely cytokine storms, some of the treatment paradigms are starting to be aimed uh, at that uh, issue. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it could be that some of the correlation between the severity of overall disease and neurological manifestations is a result of you know, that subpopulation having a disruption of, of the blood-brain barrier. Correct. But it's also really worrisome to me that even without that, even if the disease is not severe overall, that this retrograde axonal transport uh, through the nasal endothelium along the olfactory sensory nerves to, for example, the medulla could be happening because of the affinity for the ACE2 receptor. That's actually kind of scary. Yes, it is. On that note, let's talk about the various manifestations. Uh, we can break it down into the acute ones and the uh, potential chronic ones. I and mean, obviously, this is also new that we probably don't know all the different chronic ones, but we'll, we'll give it a good try. So um, can you help us uh, list the acute manifestations? Yes. So the acute manifestations that we're aware of uh, in all coronaviruses um, include uh, mild forms of aseptic meningitis, 
um, all the way to um, reports of acute necrotizing encephalitis. Um, patients can experience um, direct uh, neural invasion like we talked about, uh, resulting in uh, cortical damage and particularly symptomatic seizures resulting from this encephalitis. Um, some of uh, the recent reports also suggest uh, that vascular incidents uh, are on the increase. Um, there was recently a letter uh, from a group of Italian neurologists uh, specifically sent um, to inform uh, the U.S. cohort that they've seen a significant increase uh, recently in vascular events uh, within their patients in Italy. And so uh, it's something to be aware of. Um, so specifically, the acute manifestations that we would be concerned about are vascular events um, and, and direct infection of the brain parenchyma itself, uh, including encephalomyelitis. Let me ask you about two more things. One is um, the critical illness myopathy. Um, is there a different timeline for the onset of that in patients with COVID-19 compared to you know, your sort of usual ICU patient? Um, and maybe that's not something that we know. And then the other was I was going to get you to tell us more about the particular case reports of the fulminant necrotizing encephalopathy that is being seen. Sure. I think it's important before we uh, jump further into this that when, when we as neurointensivists approach patients as such uh, with suspected viral, uh, and you could also include bacterial infection uh, of the CNS, uh, we have to consider whether or not this is a, a primary uh, or secondary manifestation of the infection and is it um, actually a result of the infection itself or a post-viral or post-infectious manifestation uh, due to, like you referred, the cytokine storm or um, an inflammatory response that recurred, uh, occurred as a result of the infection. So in reference to um, uh, the neuromyopathy, we don't have a timeline. What we don't have from the Wuhan investigators um, is the time at when the patients were diagnosed, how they were diagnosed. It was simply an observation that they made. Um, there are multiple reports in the literature that use of steroids, use of uh, paralytics uh, and such can increase uh, the uh, incidence of uh, neuromyopathy. Um, but uh, the, that data hasn't really quite held true in the literature. Uh, what we do know is that uh, hyperglycemia is one of the largest uh, uh, predictors of critical illness neuromyopathy. So we don't quite know. But where I can tell you getting into this post-viral inflammatory uh, syndromes, um, like with influenza, the question has to be, is, the, is this neuropathy axonal or demyelinating? Because... Um, post-viral syndromes, including Guillain-Barre syndrome, have been seen with other viruses, specifically influenza and some with the coronaviruses. So this weakness could be related to an acute demyelinating neuropathy rather than a uh, different pathology with the critical illness neuromyopathy. Other things that we need to consider in this post-infectious, post-inflammatory uh, viral illnesses are something uh, referred to as acute disseminated encephalomyelitis, uh, which the non-neurologist can compare similar, similarly to an acute uh, demyelinating inflammatory condition uh, like multiple sclerosis. Now, it acts differently. It's usually uh, monophasic, uh, but it's something that we can see as well. Wow. It's, uh, I think it's a lot for us non-neurologists to, to, to be absorbing, but that's exactly why we are talking to you. So I... I think I wanted to ask you a little bit more about the necrotizing 
encephalitis picture, and then maybe get you to talk about possible treatments uh, and diagnostic maneuvers. So do you have anything that you wanted to add about the necrotizing encephalopathy? Sure. So over the past um, 24 hours, there's been a significant amount of reports um, in the the news media um, about a paper that was uh, written uh, in the Journal of Radiology um, out of Henry Ford about a uh, mid-50s uh, flight attendant that presented uh, with uh, respiratory symptoms and had an acute neurologic deterioration. What they found in this patient was um, the syndrome referred to as acute necrotizing uh, encephalitis or acute necrotizing encephalopathy. Um, what we know about this uh, disease is that it is related to this cytokine storming uh, that we referred to earlier and that it's not a direct result of the viral infection, it's actually a result of the inflammatory reaction from uh, the virus. Um, we know that uh, it's usually classified as a post-viral syndrome. Um, it has a mortality rate of 30%, uh, which is concerning. And upwards of 90 to 95% of the patients that survive uh, this event will have uh, lifelong neurologic uh, problems, whether it be uh, dependency, difficulty working, a change in personality, and so forth. We have to be cautious that it's one case report, but it is something that we should be aware of. Um, I will tell you that we've had reports from colleagues in New York of young patients, likely with a, a more robust inflammatory response, presenting with multifocal intracranial hemorrhages uh, and brain death. Um, we've had patients at our institution present with primary encephalitis uh, that only showed respiratory symptoms two to three days later. Um, and so uh, there are a multitude of neurologic problems that we aren't 100% yet aware of. But uh, this case report is something that's quite concerning, uh, given the fact that um, in, in the spectrum of age that we've been talking about, this was, a, uh, in essence, a younger individual Uh, with a devastating neurologic injury. Well, on that note, I would like to move into um, supportive and uh, therapeutic treatments. The the first question I wanted to ask you is um, about the vascular injuries, because it sounds like that's actually a pretty significant portion of the patients who are presenting. You had mentioned that that's in uh, 6% of the patients, and that, for example, the uh, neurological Society is now recommending that all acute strokes be worked up for COVID-19. So do, do, do they all, for example, need to be considered for either thrombolysis or neurointerventional maneuvers? Or is it more a, uh, a, a re- regime of supporting their blood pressure, uh, you know, making sure that they are uh, as normal oxic as possible? Can, can you tell us more about how you think about this? Yes, I think it's a great question. I think even though the American Heart Association, American Stroke Association are recommending that all vascular patients be considered COVID rule-outs, I don't think we should change the standards in which we manage these patients. So at present, we uh, will continue um, to follow the evidence on mechanical thrombolysis, uh, intravenous thrombolysis, um, and triage those patients um, as uh, we typically do. Now, one interesting point for the listeners is that in these guidelines for the COVID crisis, the uh, committee is recommending that patients following uh, mechanical thrombectomy or intravascular thrombolysis 
be moved out of an ICU as quickly as possible, um, which goes against what we typically do um, in holding these patients for 24 hours post-thrombolysis. They support the notion of what many clinicians have said for some time, that there's no substantial data to support the fact that we keep these patients for 24 hours in an ICU. Um, And they are now recommending, um, due to the likely lack of, of ICU beds, that we move these patients as quickly as possible. Now, when it comes to patients that um, have vascular events in the setting of their acute respiratory illness, the question is going to be significantly more difficult. Um, We have to question whether or not we do an acute intervention um, in a patient that uh, that is COVID positive, uh, running the risk of exposing um, healthcare staff. Um, I think we will uh, make those recommendations if we have uh, the option. Um, but from, from the standpoint of uh, a patient that presents late, if you will, um, it will be uh, secondary stroke management to, uh, at attempts to prevent uh, the problem from occurring again. And what's interesting is there's some data coming out about the use of Lovenox, uh, therapeutic Lovenox, in COVID patients, um, like we talked about earlier, because some patients are presenting day seven to nine with respiratory manifestations, at which point... Uh, they are already in sepsis-induced coagulopathy in early stages of DIC. So the use of these medications would likely be a primary preventative strategy in these vascular events. And it's something that is gaining traction, and I believe there's a clinical trial going on as we speak. So you're saying uh, trying to get these patients on a therapeutic Lovenox regimen prior to them getting more ill? Correct. That, that that would be really interesting. I, I, I know that in the um, in in the system of you know the lungs, it's been a little controversial whether to anticoagulate patients because they are in DIC and some of them are hypocoagulable, but anticoagulating them results in alveolar hemorrhage and pulmonary hemorrhage. It's tough. So if there's a way to determine that early intervention with the addition of uh, something like Lovenox would be helpful with that, that. That would be really good to find out. Are there other supportive treatments um, to think about? Um, I, I'm assuming there's not that much to do in terms of therapeutic treatment, but that's that's why we're talking to you. Uh, that's a great question. Uh, there's not a lot we can do uh, once the insult has occurred and we're outside of what we call the intervention window. Um, we usually transition into uh, a mode of prevention um, at uh, which time we would consider the underlying mechanism and, and what to do um, as with such. So um, it would differ substantially with each patient depending on whether or not they have an acute myocardial injury with an LV thrombus. Um, is this a Takatsubo's-like phenomenon secondary to the sepsis from the virus itself? Um, or is this a, a um, large vascular or microvascular insult secondary to uh, hypercoagulability? Uh, or some other um, direct uh, invasion of the vessels. So it's more symptomatic at that point, uh, depending on the type of um, stroke the patient has, which is likely and probably out of the context of this talk because there's so many different etiologies of stroke uh, that we could talk about, and the management for each is quite different. Right. But I think the take-home message for all of us is a lot of these really 
really severely ill, critically ill patients who are paralyzed and mechanically ventilated, maybe even prone, are actually going to be the exact population where the most severe neurological complications are happening. And we really have to ask ourselves how to best monitor the neurological status and how to think about the uh, additional risk factors that could be making them susceptible to, for example, either a uh, large thrombotic injury like a cardiac etiology or microvascular because they're in DIC. And we need to think about that because maybe there are interventions that we should be undertaking. And if we um, don't think about it and don't look for it, we might miss the window. Is, is, is that fair to, to uh, sort of paraphrase your thoughts? I think that's very fair. I, I think one paradigm we could think about um, selfishly would be the institution of a critical care EEG in these patients. Uh, to determine whether or not there's symmetry within the brain, um, if there are large lesions underlying uh, that, we can, that we can identify, uh, and whether or not the patients are having epileptic-like events would definitely clue us into uh, further uh, consideration and workup in specific patients that are prone, paralyzed, and sedated. Uh, that would be the safest uh, way to do this. Now, resources tend to be limited uh, given the amount of patients that are in the ICU, uh, but that could be something that we would do, and we would likely institute that in cases where we thought uh, the patient was at risk for a neurologic problem. Right. I would like to move into a brief discussion about the chronic neurological complications that you could see as a result of a COVID-19 infection. Are there any that you're worried about? We don't know at this point. I can point to other chronic neurologic problems associated with coronaviruses, influenza, uh, and other severe respiratory viruses. Um, there's reports of multiple post-infectious illnesses. So, for example, if a patient develops this uh, acute disseminated encephalomyelitis, uh, much like the multiple sclerosis example that I gave to you earlier, uh, the patient uh, can have long-term neurologic sequelae from the, the damage to the myelin uh, that did occur. A proportion of these patients, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if, if not, they only not only developed uh, this neuromyopathy, which is uh, a, a chronic medical illness, uh, but some could develop Guillain-Barre, uh, which we know uh, recovery isn't absolute, uh, and patients could have the chronic form of uh, the inflammatory uh, polyneuropathy. There's reports with other uh, viral illnesses, specifically those that um, can lead to this necrotizing encephalitis, uh, causing phenomena such as Klein-Levin syndrome, which is acute hypothalamic dysfunction that results in uh, hypersomnia, hypersexuality, um, hyperphagia. Okay. Well, I, I think that's really helpful for us to you know, be aware of. Uh, we are running out of time. I think that's been a really great discussion of SARS-CoV-2 and its impact on the neurological system. I would like to make sure that we at least mention the different possible neurological manifestations of other viruses, such as uh, influenza. So Chris, if I could get you to talk about the different uh, complications that you see for influenza, and then also talk about the complications uh, associated with uh, RSV, and we will um, finish on that. Sure. Uh, influenza is probably the most well-documented virus to have neurologic uh, sequelae. Uh, within the pediatric population, febrile seizures um, is by far the most implicated uh, neurologic problem. 
um, around one in five patients presenting with uh, influenza uh, in the pediatric population will have a febrile seizure. Um, on top of that, um, other uh, manifestations include that acute necrotizing encephalitis we discussed. Um, and there's other uh, encephalitis and encephalomyelitis that can occur. There's also another unique syndrome that's also given the acronym MERS um, that's referred to mild, as uh, mild encephalopathy with reversible splenial lesions um, in which uh, patients present with gross encephalopathy, but they also have uh, acute diffusion restriction or changes on the MRI within their corpus callosum and almost present as a disconnection-like syndrome. Um, and uh, that's a, I've personally seen uh, two of those cases from influenza in the last year. Uh, and so from an influenza standpoint, those are the acute manifestations. Now, chronically, we've also had multiple case reports of acute inflammatory uh, demyelinating polyneuropathy or Guillain-Barre syndrome. Uh, and uh, as a direct result of viremia from the flu, not as a result from the vaccine. Um, in reference to uh, RSV or respiratory syncytial virus, uh, the evidence suggests that 39% of patients with RSV present with neurosymptoms. Classically, the literature uh, described this in children, but as time goes by and we increase the amount of viral testing we're doing, there's a significant proportion of the adult population that is also affected by uh, RSV. Uh, most notably, uh, for those of us that don't practice pediatric critical care, um, there is a significant proportion of, of pediatric patients uh, with RSV who present with central apnea. Um, 16 to 21% of patients with our, uh, pediatric patients with RSV can present with this apnea. Um, the, the hypothesis is, is the result of an abnormal laryngeal chemoflex response, um, and it's something that predicts uh, the need for intubation uh, in the pediatric population as well. So it's a surrogate they use to predict uh, the need uh, for not only ICU monitoring, but for mechanical ventilation in these patients. That's some list right there. That those, those all sound pretty serious. Um, I would really wanted to thank you for taking the time, Chris, for, to talk to us because I think um, this is a very, very important and educational discussion about the various severe neurological phenomena that we have to look for because if we don't look for it, you know, we, we, we can't, we can't treat it. We can't diagnose it. We can't treat it. Um, and I think for me, the summary for this, the takeaway is that, uh, you know, critical care, again, is a uh, multidisciplinary process. We, we need to make sure that we um, get our various team members like neurology to help us in managing these patients. Um, and, on this note, I guess uh, it's a good time to conclude this edition of the iCritical Care podcast. Um, I'm going to once again thank um, Chris for being here. And please refer to the SCCM website for further resources on SARS-CoV-2 and COVID-19 uh, issues. Uh, and the SCCM website has all the other critical care podcast recordings. Um, for our team, I am Dr. Ludwig Lin. Thanks again. Ludwig H. Lin, MD, is an intensivist and anesthesiologist at Alta Bates Summit Medical Center in the Bay Area in Northern California and is a consulting professor at Stanford University, 
where he teaches a seminar on the psychosocial and economic ramifications of critical illness. Dr. Lin did his medical training, anesthesia residency, and critical care medicine fellowship at the University of California, San Francisco. He has served as faculty at both Stanford University as well as the University of California, San Francisco, where he was a professor and the medical director of critical care at San Francisco General Hospital. He has interests in patient-family communication as well as education. Being an SCCM podcast host reminds Dr. Lin of his undergraduate days as a news broadcaster for his college radio station, KZSU. Join or renew your membership with SCCM, the only multi-professional society dedicated exclusively to the advancement of critical care. Contact a customer service representative at 847-827-6888 or visit sccm.org membership for more information. The iCritical Care podcast is the copyrighted material of the Society of Critical Care Medicine and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion or endorsement on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, its officers, volunteers, or members, or that of the podcast commercial supporter.